Welcome to Songcraft and the second part of our two-part interview with Jerry Swamp Dog Williams. If you haven't heard part one, be sure to check it out and then come back to the second half of the conversation. As a reminder, this interview does include explicit content. Well, as we mentioned before, you were the first African-American staff producer at Atlantic Records before you walked away. Um, but even after you were gone, uh, Atlantic producers, in- including the head of A&R, Jerry Wexler, still recorded songs that you wrote uh, on their artists. And one example would be Wilson Pickett's It's Still Good, which we just heard. Here's what happened. Jerry Wexler came to me and he told me after I left, leaving Atlantic is the best thing you could have ever done. I said, damn. I didn't quite understand it Mm -hmm. until in the 70s when I went by his house, condo, hotel, whatever the hell it was, in New York, and he had listened to the ZZ Hill Blues at the Opera album. Are you familiar with it? Yeah, yeah. This is one of the best albums I've ever heard in my life. Now, coming from Jerry Wexler, tears roll out my eyes. I mean, it's (laughs) like, you know, God coming down saying, any motherfucking thing you want to do, go on, do it. You got my permission. (laughs) (laughs) There ain't going to be no repercussions. (laughs) I mean, so every chance Jerry got, he did some of my shit. Hmm. shit that I had brought in there. Now, here's the, here's the thing. I own the publishing on all the shit. Right. right. They would have owned the publishing. Yeah. Not me. Right. You know? And then when they started, I took a shot on something one day. Because they had this old lady upstairs who was doing all the copyrights and the music and shit. Yeah. For all of Atlanta. Atlanta was big then, you know? Yeah. So the idea was, I write, everything I write belongs to Cotillion Music and some other company they had. Yeah. And I started turning this shit in as Cotillion, Jerry Williams Music. Mm-hmm. And they kept clearing this shit like that. <laughs> wow. I said, wow, this is all right. So I ain't say nothing. <laughs> I put all my shit through there. So. Right. Um, Start making that publishing money. Yeah. 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 Once you uh, left Atlantic, um, you started heading down to Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and, and Macon, Georgia, to produce records. What was it that drew you back to the South to start making records there? The great thing about leaving Atlantic was they gave me four weeks pay without anything out of it. <laughs> right. And another little amount of money that had built up through some kind of fund. Hmm. So, and I was making, I think, 600 a week. Right. 
So I walked out of there with almost $3,000. Mm. I was rich in a motherfucker, right? <laughs> so <laughs> I knew what I wanted to do, you know. So I did some homework. Yeah. And I called Phil Wallen. Who was the, he was the head of Capricorn Records. Right. Yeah. Yeah, well, I called Phil and I made a deal with him. I said, look, I need studio and I need musicians. I'm going to supply the talent. I'm going to do all the production arrangements. I'm going to go out and uh, make independent deals. We'll split 50-50 after expenses. Right. He said, sound good to me. Come on down. So we went on down. And uh, I think the first artist I cut was Wolf Moon. Yeah, I cut Wolf Moon. And uh, I made a deal at Capitals Tower Records. Right. As a subsidiary of Capital. Yeah. Yeah. I was supposed to be the president of Tower. Hmm. But due to my blackness, <laughs> they were afraid. They said, I don't know. And I was 100% with them. Yeah. Because I wanted to make money and wanted to make it work. And I didn't want to just, you know, I wasn't campaigning for black. You know, I was campaigning for money. <laughs> so I went out and got a friend of mine, Puerto Rican by the name of Sammy Varga. We made Sammy president. and But I'm running the company. Right. So then I bring in Wolf Moon. Yeah. And, um, well, I'm not going to say the dollar figure, but we were going to do a particular dollar figure on every right. album. Yeah. And I took him Wolf Moon, and he said, well, yeah, let me hear it. I said, why? He said, well, I want to know what it sounds like. <laughs> I said, nigga, that's my company. <laughs> I said, it's yours. Right. I said, fuck what it sound like. <laughs> and he listened and he told me, he said, man, it, it just don't fit what we trying to do. I said, we ain't trying to do nothing. <laughs> it's me. Right. You are sitting in my seat, motherfucker. <laughs> I said, I'm just too black to occupy. <laughs> and <laughs> he finally got a check cut. And after he cut the check, then I had him to give me a release of the motherfucking album. Yeah. And I took it back. Yeah, yeah. And sold it to somebody else. I forgot who I sold it right. to. I sold that album two, three times. I, one of the one of the records in that era um, that is one of the great Southern soul classics of all time is Doris Duke's I'm a Loser album, which, of course, you produced, and it, which yielded the top 10 R&B hit to The Other Woman, I'm the Other Woman. My friends all ask me if I know the real you I say yes I know my man and all about his other woman so to me that's nothing new tell me something dear friend they say please don't get offended they're only trying to help me so I won't mess up my life But they don't know To the other woman I'm the other woman And the other woman Is his wife 
Um, you wrote that song with Gary U.S. Bonds, who, of course, is uh, best known as a singer of hits like New Orleans and Quarter to Three and School is Out and all that stuff from the early 60s. Uh-huh. But um, not to go back in time here too much, but but tell oh, us go how... Go on back. Go how, on uh, <laughs> back. Fuck it. I don't care. Tell us how uh, you and Gary started uh, working together, started writing songs together. Um, he, as his career started to wane, he moved into a an apartment complex in Portsmouth, Virginia. My address was 1011 Taswell. His was 951 Taswell. Right. And we talked. We had a lot. Well, first of all, we both drank a lot. So <laughs> we had that in common. <laughs> right. Know, do something with a fifth of liquor. <laughs> but anyway, he had, he said, man, let's write some songs and shit. And, we did. I mean, that's all. We just, and then we formed a little clique, you know, and you had to qualify to get in our little clique. Gary and I was the clique, right? <laughs> and I remember Gary came to the house one night. He said, man, I was on the subway and I saw an advertisement and it said, to the other woman, I'm the other woman. I forgot what they were advertised. I don't know if it was stockings or lotion, but it was <laughs> something for, you know. And we thought about that motherfucker and we played around and finally we hit it. Yeah. Mm. You know, I've heard you say that that you and Gary were basically just writing all kinds of crazy songs, like writing tribute songs to people that were alive as yeah. if they were dead. <laughs> just talk a little bit about your partnership and just kind of, were you guys just having fun or were you trying to aim stuff at certain artists or what, you know, what was all that about? We uh, were having fun. You, you get together and you know, everybody was drinking and, and, and getting drunk and right. everything else. So, you just do things. I mean, it, things that you wouldn't ordinarily do. Yeah. I'll say if when you have complete control of your faculties. <laughs> so we decided it was a good idea to write songs about people. We used to call like the one we did about the late, great Jackie Wilson. And Jackie was <laughs> still alive. <laughs> <laughs> we wrote songs about niggas, you know, we're going to miss them, you know. <laughs> we, miss, <laughs> we miss you and all that kind of shit. And, you know, you know that shit like, Johnny has gone. Right. This heaven above, you know, niggas out there in the street, man. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> it's still funny. <laughs> oh, man. Well, uh, I, when you were working down there and, and hooked up with Phil Walden down in, in Macon, Georgia, and you were you making some records down there, I know that like um, uh, Paul Hornsby and Johnny Sandlin yeah. and, and those guys were, were playing down there. And, um, you know, they went on to produce like Almond Brothers and Marshall Tucker Band and, and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, at the time they had just kind of come off of being in this band with Greg and Dwayne Allman and, and they were kind of the precursor to the Allman Brothers band. I know. Phil Walden hired them to come work well, at that studio. Glass, wasn't yeah, 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 Hourglass. Um, so, and Phil had just signed the Allman Brothers. He was just starting Capricorn Records. Um, when I listen to that Doris Duke album, I hear some guitar work that sounds like Dwayne to me. Was did yeah, was Dwayne was, part yeah, of that? Yeah, was Dwayne. Dwayne came in. Um, he played on a little a little bit of Doris Duke. He played on a little bit of Irma Thomas. He uh, 
would just walk in the studio because I used to keep the guys in the studio until the album was finished, like four days or some shit. Yeah, you know, yeah. only broke to send somebody out to get food, that kind <laughs> right. of shit. Yeah, and um, he would come in like they'd be coming in off the road, and he would come in. He's you know he's like still flying. Yeah, so. He still needed something to do to come down, so he'd come in the studio. Man, can I can I get in on it? Yeah, go fuck yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he would start playing. Yeah, yeah. he was just one of those Never, guys who loved to play. Yeah, it's not bad if a dude like Dwayne Allman's gonna say, "Can I play on your record?" Oh, uh, ain't that a bitch? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he assumed he was gonna say yes because he was picking up the guitar as he was asking. <laughs> you know, right. and it was all right with me. had a certain thing we were doing down there. Yeah. I don't yeah. know what the hell it was. I, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say, I, yes, well, this is how I had planned. No, I hadn't planned shit but to cut some records. Yeah. You know, but all of the right people seemed to come together. Mm-hmm. Is that magic? Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and it seems like there was... Uh, a harmony there i mean it, when you and you've got white guys and you got black guys and everybody's together meanwhile in the rest of the country <laughs> you know everything's going to hell how did you maintain that kind of harmony in the working environment without you know without racial problems and everybody just being cool together you got there should be a species just for musicians because <laughs> we don't think like other motherfuckers think hmm. you know you wait, drum your ass off. Cool, let's go. You yeah. know, yeah. You black, play your ass off. All right, right let's go. Yeah. You know, it's like you don't find too many musicians who meet strangers mm-hmm. after talking a little bit or picking a little bit. Hey, we friends, my yeah. buddy. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, I just got in town, man. I ain't got nowhere to stay. Oh shit, you can stay on my couch. <laughs> right, you know? right. It's like, <laughs> that's what we had. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, you, you think of guys, these guys, like I mentioned, are, they're kind of the pioneers of Southern rock, you know, and you got, they're, they're producing Charlie Daniels records, right. you know, but at the same time, um, you know, shortly before that, down there in, in Capricorn, they're cutting uh, God Bless, that, that Arthur Conley of Sweet Soul Music fame yeah. cut down there, one of your songs that became a top 40 R&B hit. God bless the your songwriting and and the stuff that you were doing in that era god bless came out on on atlantic's atco label as did another top 10 r&b single that you wrote with gary bonds and with charlie whitehead called she didn't know she kept on talking right um and i listened to that song and i listened to the to the doris duke stuff like to the other woman or feet start walking which was another 
top 40 R&B single. And it strikes me how good you were at writing songs from a woman's perspective. And as a songwriter, how are you able to sort of get into that different headspace or, or, or see the world from another perspective to write for a woman's voice, for instance? I was raised by women, strong women. Mm -hmm. Just happened, Gary Barnes was raised the same way. Yeah. By his grandmother and everybody. So we heard things that we did when we weren't even listening. And they became pictures that developed in our minds. And we were able to express what we saw. And this was sort of the... This was the pivotal era. I mean, this was the time when you're still producing these records as Jerry Williams Jr., um, but this was when you released Total Destruction to Your Mind, your debut as Swamp Dog, where you sort of started dealing with these issues about sex and race and class and politics and drugs and just having frank conversations through your music. What was it? I mean, was it just sort of a, a changing tide in the culture or experimenting with drugs? I mean, what what sort of was the birth of this new guy, the swamp dog, you know? I needed a protector. I needed a shield. I needed somebody with strength. Because Jerry Williams in the world was weak. Jerry Williams in the production world the writing world was strong, but besides that, Jerry Williams became very weak. So Swamp Dog came up, and Swamp Dog became a son of a bitch who was just as good and in some cases better than anybody else, quote unquote. Yeah. Uh, that was why Swamp Dog wore. Before all the rappers and shit, Swamp Dog was wearing 16 and 20 carat diamond rings and all right. kinds of shit. You right, know? right. Uh, driving Rolls Royces and all that kind of shit. Yeah. It was like having Swamp Dog was like Jerry Williams' big brother. Right. You mm. know, like, don't fuck with Jerry, okay? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that is what that was about. And that gave me time to find out if I wanted to live, if I wanted to kill myself, or what. Because what I thought would make me happy didn't make me happy. Hmm. That was the killer. I thought money was going to make me happy. Yeah. And it didn't. You know, instead of being able to go out and buy a pound of bacon, I could go down and buy a Half a slab, you know. <laughs> right. And um, there's only so much you can get out of life. You can only get the same things, only bigger. So this time you do like that chic over there and have your car made up in diamonds, you know. Yeah, but yeah. still, yeah, it's still just a car. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I feel like you... We're really kind of addressing some of that um, on that record with a like a song like Synthetic World.
you know, that's a song that really is is looking at consumerism and and even environmental issues and just the idea of, of kind of authenticity and what I think of as some pretty progressively minded themes for that time. Um, but the music itself is still pretty traditional soul music. Uh-huh. Did you feel like that pushing the boundaries lyrically would be better received in the framework of music that was kind of already comfortable and acceptable to people, the more traditional type of R&B sound? Yeah, most definitely. I wasn't about to switch up. Yeah. yeah. What, because radio had format, and I don't give a fuck how great you do something that's different. If it don't fit a format, yeah. you just got something great. Nobody gonna hear it. <laughs> right. Yeah. So yeah, I conformed. Yeah. Well yeah. and and probably the most successful single that you had as Swam Dog was Mama's Baby, Daddy's Maybe, uh top forty R and B in nineteen seventy. So that's another one that you and Gary wrote together. How did that idea come about? <laughs> we, uh, the same thing. We down in my basement drinking and playing <laughs> piano and you know just talking shit. And um, so if we do like an ASCAP workshop, we'll just tell writers just drink a lot. <laughs> and <laughs> maybe not never. I mean, but when we drank, we were celebrating. Of course, we always had something to celebrate just about <laughs> every day. Music business was still great. I mean, you could walk down the street, and as you're walking down the street, you run into one or two of the Coasters, one mm. or two of the Cadillacs. You might see Jackie Wilson. You know, he used to like to park his car in the middle of the motherfucking street. <laughs> but he, had, he had a little blue light on the top of his Cadillac that just went around. I don't know what the fuck it was. But, <laughs> like a police car? <laughs> yeah, but he would... But it was small. And he would... He he liked to jump out his car and when he see a woman and go running over to her and he'd always leave his driver's side door open. It made it very difficult for people <laughs> to go around him, you know. Right. But yeah. after all, he was Jackie Wilson. Right. So, you know. And they, yeah. Well, now, total destruction to your mind was eventually certified gold, though it took a while to get there. Um, but it did gain enough attention at the time it was released that you moved over to Elektra Records uh, for the follow-up album, Rat On. And the cover of that LP shows you riding on a giant white rat and has, has supposedly been voted one of the worst album covers of all time. <laughs> Tell us about that cover. Yeah, which <laughs> uh, never did disturb me, yeah. even the first time I heard it, because I knew it was going to give longevity to the album. Right, right. Something to talk yeah, about. Nobody talks about the record itself, just the album. I said, maybe I just started putting out an album cover, you know? <laughs> Fuck the record. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so what's the what's the concept there? Where'd you get that idea? Well, it was supposed to have been the white man had, had finally, well, I'm going to say succumbed to the black man. <laughs> black man's on top there. <laughs> but if you you got to look at the album 
good because the rat, which represents the white man, has a big smile on his face. Mm. He's smiling because he's saying to himself, this dumb motherfucker think I'm going to let him stay up there. He's got to be out of his motherfucking mind. You know, I'm going to let him have his fun for a minute. But you know, in a minute, it's going to be his ass. And that's what it meant. Yeah. But nobody wanted to take it like that. No, it's it's not lost upon me. I see a, a copy of your new album in front of us, and I see you. It looks like you're walking a rat yeah, on that's a leash. The, uh, yeah. <laughs> so things come full circle. Yeah. Right? <laughs> the rat's back. Well, on, uh, on Rat On, I mean, you, you continue to talk about... Uh, provocative themes and even in the song predicament number two which talks about unfaithfulness yeah Um, so I feel compelled to ask, is is there some autobiography in some of these songs, or are you playing characters and talking about other people's lives? Mostly characters in uh, other people's lives. Um, I had a relatively happy marriage. Hmm. When, well, she died, and I got married again, but bitch hated me and I hated her so <laughs> this <laughs> the, story, the, yeah. divorce was final July 31st <laughs> <laughs> oh god always something to celebrate yeah so <laughs> anyway so uh, you were writing you, you were kind of writing about different or more universal kind of experiences I was I give an example I did a song on Arthur Conley called it's so nice when it's somebody else's wife, right? Now, that was on Capricorn. Yeah. Uh, we were having a party at my house, and one of my buddies was messing with my next-door neighbor's wife. And I said, hey, Matt. Well, Matt did anyway now. I said, <laughs> Matt, I don't know what, how, what I said or what the question was, but he said, hey, man. It's so nice when it's somebody else's wife. And I ran down to my basement and started writing, man. I, it, the, the, the thing just came to me, you know. And you didn't shy away from writing about grand political ideas either, as exemplified by songs like uh, Remember I Said Tomorrow yeah. or God Bless America for What. Um, and there weren't a lot of artists at that time necessarily that were grappling with these big social themes in that way. Yeah, so I found out why. Motherfuckers wanted to eat regular. (laughs) Well, what made you kind of say, "Hey, I'm going to tackle some of this, some of these big ideas," you know, some of the political stuff? 
Well, first of all, I got out of uh, the love song thing mm-hmm. because I thought, one, ain't too many short lovers. Um, I wasn't good looking like some of them other niggas out there, like, you know, Chuck Jackson. They had they were the kind of acts that when they walked on stage, women just threw their drawers on stage and all that, <laughs> right. you know. And I walk on stage, they throw a brick at me, you know. <laughs> so I said, fuck this, this ain't my bag. <laughs> so <laughs> I um I decided to cut records about how I feel, not and if it was a love song, it would be kind of left-handed. Mm-hmm. You know, it would be uh, there would be some truth in it. Yeah, you know, I just didn't see, and I still don't uh, see myself as a romantic. You know, like fuck that. <laughs> it's I like Swamp Dog. Swamp Dog silly. Swamp Dog does basically what he want to do. Yeah, and. See, Swamp Dog can sing a love song, then turn around and sing a song about Mickey Mouse, <laughs> and then sing some other shit. Right. On Red On, on that record, you know, you do a cover of the country hit, uh, She Even Woke Me Up to Say Goodbye. And, yeah. and maybe that was a little foreshadowing that you were about to have this uh, unlikely and maybe kind of accidental success as a country songwriter when She's All I Got, which uh, you and Gary Bonds wrote, became a huge country hit for, for Johnny Paycheck. But before. Paycheck cut it, of course. Freddie North had a top 10 R&B single on your own Mankind label with that. I know that your Mankind label was a joint venture with uh, Nashboro Records, which was run by Bud Powell in Nashville. And I believe that Freddie North actually worked on the Nashboro staff. Um, so how did you wind up making an artist out of him? Freddie was the um, uh, head of promotion. Right. And when I went there, after all of the conversation and everything, mm-hmm. I knew I wasn't going to in my mind, be affiliated. Because every time I went to a company and there was a black up front or near the front, mm-hmm. this motherfucker would always put thumbs down because he scared huh. somebody want his shit. Right. right. Freddie uh, took me into another room and he said, man, we need you here. So we really need you here. I had total respect for him from that moment on. And then... Bud said, I want you to cut Freddie. He said, Freddie can sing. So now, they give me a copy of Freddie's album, which right. Freddie had cut on himself. The album was palatable at best. <laughs> but I said, here's a nigga that did me a favor. He didn't have to do it. You don't find too many niggas like this. And I'm not speaking nigga in a derogatory way. It's a guy. <laughs> 42 is a guy. <laughs> but sounds too white. 
But <laughs> anyway, I said, I'm going to see what I can do. So we put these songs together, and he flew to New York, and we rehearsed, and then we went in the studio in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Yeah. And we cut smashes. I mean, the album that didn't come out is a motherfucker. Hmm. Yeah. Well, even around, you know, Freddie and all these connections you're making in Nashville, somehow we get to the point where Johnny Paycheck cuts She's All I Got and turns that thing into a hit. Fred Knopf used to do most of the demos for Elvis Presley. Hmm. Presley loved Freddie's voice. Huh. So when, when Freddie did a demo, Elvis Presley usually cut it. Wow. Billy Sherrill used Freddie a lot for demos. He was producing Johnny, right? Yeah, he was producing damn near Everybody, George Jones and Tammy, Conway Twitted, yeah. Tammy Wynette. I mean, you name them. Yeah, I mean, this yeah. motherfucker. I, King this has been cut at least a hundred times. <laughs> yeah, and he loved it. Well, by the end of the 1970s, I mean, you had put out like 10 or 12 albums as Swamp Dog. You're very prolific in that era, and there's a million songs that that we could talk about um well, let's talk about but all of them. <laughs> i wish we i wish we could, i could stay here a week man i love your stories <laughs> um but i do want to uh, fast forwarding a little bit um i want to talk about your song sidewalks fences and walls which you recorded on solomon burke in 1979 um and it was recorded by bob dylan in 1987 What's it like as a as a songwriter to think here's Bob Dylan who's regarded as one of the greatest songwriters of all time, and he chose my song to record? That to me is one of the most flattering things that could happen to a writer. Yeah. That cause Bob write all his own shit. Right. Yeah. yeah. And he writes some way out shit. Don't <laughs> nobody know what he's talking about but him. <laughs> And then he turned around, but they hmm. keep saying Solomon loves Mary. Right. Yeah. And but I still can't understand Dylan's reasoning, and I know he's a very smart individual. Right. Of not changing Solomon <laughs> to Bob. Right. <laughs> That's I don't know. Right. Right. You know, when you talk about other people doing your songs, you've gotten plenty of love from admirers who've sampled your music. Uh, earlier, we heard Slow Slow Disco from your 1977 album, Finally Caught Up With Myself. And Kid Rock sampled that track on his song, I Got One For You, from his hugely successful uh, Devil Without a Cause album in 1998. I got no love, I got no riches, I don't roll folks, and I ain't got switches. I got no game, I can't reward you, but if you want to 
Now, money aside, I know it's very lucrative when people sample your, your stuff, but as a songwriter, do you like to hear how other artists take your music and sort of repurpose it or sample it or whatever? Or, or do you prefer to have it stay with the vision you originally gave it? Uh, no, do as much as you can to it because I know there's more than one way, as they say, to skin a cat. Yeah. You know, so I skin him one way, you skin him another way, but let's just keep him skinned. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah. That's a, a cool way to look at it, you know, because a lot of songwriters want to be real protective. They full of shit. <laughs> they full of, that's why motherfuckers be talking about, uh, them rappers, they fuck with my songs. Right. Yeah, and they finally got you some goddamn money. You know? <laughs> you, right. m- money you were supposed to get in 1958. <laughs> now you got a check for a million and a half dollars. Right. And, you, and you're going to complain. You, and you're complaining about and he cursed all through my song. Right, I wouldn't right. give a fuck. <laughs> she cursed through my. <laughs> well, let's talk about your your most recent album, "The White Man Made Me Do It." Brand new, brand new record. Um, and I looked at the album cover, and I saw this image of you on the roof of a shack in your underwear, and I and I at first kind of kind of laughed at the image until I heard the title track and and I heard the the lyrics that are obviously being referenced. I used to sit on the rooftop and read by moonlight while the master was in my shack screwing with my wife. Yeah. And the the song, I mean, it chronicles these various kinds of of oppression of blacks by whites and then kind of gives a shout out to many black pioneers and inventors and entrepreneurs who kind of became great in the face of oppression. And and the thing that struck me about that song is it's it's kind of tragic. I mean, some of the lyrics are strong. It's it's also hopeful. Mm-hmm. It's even kind of funny in certain places and it's provocative and it's inter- it's engaging, you know. Mm-hmm. And to think that after you've done more than 20 albums, you know, for decades you've been making music and to still kind of do something that's it's different. It, it sort of st- catches my ear, it strikes me. Um you're not cruising in other words despite all your success. How do you keep coming up with musical ideas and, and fresh inspiration? Um, reading the paper, watching the news, uh, just seeing changes, changes in the world. Well, this will be the last question, and and we'll get out of your hair. But uh, I've heard you. I in don't interviews. have any hair. Oh, well, then I guess we're moving in. <laughs> the same team, then. me and you. <laughs> um, I've heard you in interviews call yourself the most successful failure in the United States. What do you mean by that? Well, that see, they've been carrying that on ever since they've been fucking with that rat. But it was like now I had nine automobiles, you know. <laughs> Most of them were luxury and shit. Yeah. And uh, I used to trade limos with uh, Elton John and all that kind of shit. Right. But nobody knew me. Hmm. I had over a million dollars at one time. But nobody knew me. 
Yeah. And I think, I don't know if I, I expected when I walked down the street that women would curtsy and men <laughs> would bow and <laughs> hot dogs would taste much better. <laughs> yeah. Hamburgers would be a motherfucker, you know. <laughs> But they were all still the same. Yeah. Yeah. Then I thought maybe with money, you no longer would like a hot dog. You know, you want something else more exotic, maybe. Get some caviar. Camel hump or some shit. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, <laughs> that's what I meant when I said money disappointed me. Hmm. Yeah. Because it didn't do what I envisioned that it did. Yeah. Now, don't get me wrong. I still love money, and I still need some. Mm -hmm. But I do know what it doesn't do now. Yeah. You know, and it don't buy happiness. It does not buy happiness at all. Cause I tried it. Yeah. Mm. It don't buy shit. Yeah. Uh, it don't buy friends. Cause when it's gone, buy friends. Yeah, you yeah. know. Well, you seem like a happy guy. So if money doesn't buy happiness, what have you found? Myself, and gotten over eighty-five percent of my anxiety. So motherfucker, man, I was claustrophobic and agoraphobic simultaneously. Mm. Now, what kind of shit is that? Huh? I'm a, I was afraid of open places. Yeah. And then I was afraid of closed places. So that makes me afraid of every goddamn thing. Yeah. Mm. There is no in between. Yeah. You know, so I've learned how to conquer that along with cetraline, which is a psychotic drug that I take every day. Yeah. Okay. It's um <laughs> Take your meds, take your meds. <laughs> <laughs> now you might know it as Zoloft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I take that, keeps me smooth. Yeah. There's always been something to bring me back from bad places. I mean the journey sometimes was bumping a motherfucker, but <laughs> it brought me back. Yeah. And I'm happy. I'm very happy with myself and the few friends and the lady that I have. Mm -hmm. I'm happy with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Found peace. There it is. Thanks to Jerry Swamp Dog Williams for joining us for this very special double episode of Songcraft Spotlight on Songwriters. Be sure to stop by our website at songcraftshow.com and let us know what you think. Hope you can join us next time for another great conversation with a great songwriter. Including Wilson Pitts, excuse me, Wilson, Wilson Pickett's cover <laughs> of "It's Still Good." <laughs> 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 <laughs>
Wilson and piss it. <laughs> <laughs> This is the beauty of the editing software, right? See, that'll never happen. Nobody will hear me say that. It's going to sound beautiful. Wilson Pickett.